Amen. Well, welcome to the first of our second services, and I said this last service is that I used to be a high school teacher, and second period always gets an awesome education. First period, where you make all your mistakes, find out what jokes didn't work, and then you adjust as necessary, so get ready, because this is the good one. Just kidding. Matthew chapter 16 is where we're at, and if you're new, welcome. We go straight through books of the Bible. We're in Matthew, and we're a little over halfway through, so um, we will be done I don't know when, but sometime. So Matthew 16, verse 13 to 20. I'm going to read God's Word. It says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that He was the Christ. This is God's Word. Let me pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is power of salvation. It is what You have given us, the only thing we have that can change us from the inside out. I pray, Holy Spirit, that You will move me out of the way. You will speak the words that You need to speak to the hearts that it needs to be spoken to, whether it be words of comfort or conviction. Father, I pray that through your word and through your work, you will make more disciples and you will plant more churches in your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, on the eve of our two-year anniversary, so next two, next week, I think we'll be two years old, um, and as we begin another 2015, another year of, of existence, we're going to talk about, I think, a very timely passage because it basically tells us about the church that Jesus is building. And by church, there's kind of two ways to look at it. Big C church is the the church that I'm going to talk about that exists in this place and other places and has existed throughout time. And then there's little C church, which is the local church and what we have here. But throughout the gospel, it's interesting to note that we've read Jesus came to do many things. And in the last 15 plus chapters, we've seen that Jesus came to teach. That's one of Matthew's kind of identifying things. He wants to show Jesus as the teacher. We also see that Jesus came to refute false teaching. He came to heal the hurting, the lame, and, and the sick. He came to serve the needy. He came to feed the hungry. He says he came to save sinners. And then he says something really unique to this gospel and to really all the Gospels, Jesus says that He came to build His church. And the word church is only used twice in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's used once here in Matthew 16 and once in Matthew 18. And it's only used by Jesus. And 
certainly used in the New Testament elsewhere, but in terms of the Gospels of the only places. And the word for church is ecclesia. And what that word means is a gathering or an assembly or congregations of, of ones called out from the world to God. It can be used in a very secular way, but in the context here it's used to talk about those called out ones, called out from the world to God. Now, interestingly, the setting for what, you should always note the setting that Jesus says certain things. And so the setting that he is speaking in is Jesus is way far north in Israel. And he's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So if you looked at a map, it's probably in the back of your Bible. And if I was wise enough, I would have had a map for you. But the Sea of Galilee is the northernmost body of water. And that's where Jesus had his hometown, Capernaum, not where he was born, but where he spent kind of his ministry years, his home base. And then 25 miles north of that is kind of the upward northern boundary, what would be the tribe of Dan. And it's really separate or completely away from what is the center of religious and Jewish community in Jerusalem. So Jesus, in, in really literal terms, can't get any further away from that community. And yet, he's not quite in Caesarea Philippi. Now, this city is uh, notoriously pagan. And what I mean is, historically in the Old Testament times, the city was actually named Baal. And Baal is the name of, <laughs> excuse me, a false god in the Old Testament that Israel is always struggling with false worship of. Later was named uh, Pan by the Greeks. Probably heard of pantheism and another false god. So the city has been devoted historically to false gods. It was later changed to Caesarea Philippi. Philip was the brother of Herod, and he was in charge of this area, and he rebuilt this city to honor the emperor. And it was later um, renamed Neronius to honor Nero, another emperor that came after Jesus. And so this city and this area is completely irreligious, completely pagan, devoted to false gods and emperors. And so Jesus is right in between these two places. He's in between that which is completely irreligious and then has come away from and moved away from the religious stuff that Jesus has warned his disciples about, the leaven of the Pharisees. And it's in this in-between place where he says, I'm going to build my church. Not in this spot, obviously, but figuratively speaking, it's going to be something completely different. The church is not something that's religious, and it's not something that's irreligious. It's this third thing, unique to Jesus and unique to Christianity. Now, contrary to popular myth, the church was not created by men. The church is not an idea of men. The church was Jesus' idea, it's still his idea, and he's still building it. Now, the church, although many, if asked what the church is, would say, well, it's a religious institution, or it's, or it's this um, building, or it's this kind of organization. It's not a re Jesus didn't come to build a religious institution, and he didn't come to build some irreligious, irreligious but spiritual club. It's a people. It's a people that God, through Christ, came 
to die that he might have a people, gather people out of the world to be his, to be his own possession. A holy nation, a holy priesthood, a household of God, a family that would represent Jesus to the world. The church, by the definition I will use, is a fellowship of believers, a family of God where the presence of God's Spirit chiefly but not exclusively dwells. It's a place where the wisdom of God is uniquely made manifest. And according to Scripture, the church is a couple different things, right? It's, a, it's kind of paradoxical. The church is both invisible in that there are Christians around the world gathering, even in this city gathering. And then there are those that aren't gathered necessarily, but they are citizens of the kingdom. It's an invisible church. I can't see your heart, you can't see mine. God knows the hearts. But then there's also this visible expression of the church. The church does gather. The church is local. So it's both universal and local. It's both invisible and visible. It's both spiritual and it's physical. It's a unique organization, a church that has existed over the years. There are many people who have true Christians who have been the church and now are with Jesus. And there will be more Christians who represent the church. And then there's the local expressions of which we are one in this city. The newest one, but not the only one. So... My point in all of that is to say that this idea of the church that Jesus had, you can't separate Jesus and the church. People like to, people want to maybe. I think you'll find more people that love Jesus and less people that love the church. But people will say that. Well, I, I like Jesus. I respect Jesus. I might even love Jesus, but the church, that thing's messed up. The church is broken. The church is ugly. The church is judgmental. The church is boring. The church is irrelevant. I like Jesus. And so what I'm here to say is that you cannot love Jesus without loving the church. They're inseparable. They go together. And that's not to excuse the ugliness, brokenness, problems with the church. It is to say that Jesus, knowing the brokenness, ugliness, problems with the church, died for it and loves it, and is still building it, and is committed to it. And so you can't say you love the church, or I'm sorry, love Jesus, and not love the church. It might be harder to love the church, but Jesus loves the church. A relationship with Jesus demands and even creates a relationship with the church. The church is not option B. It's not optional at all. This would be maybe difficult or interesting to think of, but the church, I believe, is intended by Jesus to be part of the central identity of your life. And how you, how you define that, if you're defining it as an institution, that's really hard. If you're defining that as a business or defining that as some kind of earthly organization, for me to say that your identity is supposed to be the church is like, oh, what? Seriously? All my life is... That's not the kind of church I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people of God, the fellowship of believers, the family, the household of him who died for us. 
Not many people would describe their central identity as, well, I identify with the church. I, I'm the church. I think a lot of the confusion about the church and our nature of what our relationship is with it, it comes from confusion and misunderstanding of the relationship that Jesus has with the church. Lahiri talks about just that. He says, look, the church is built on me, the church is built by me, and the church is built for me. The church is about Jesus. And here's a little secret. You and I get frustrated and angry and irritated with the church when it ceases to be about Jesus. That's where it goes wrong. And so as we talk about what the church is, I want you to hear this is what our church is about. And it's going to be really simple, but I think the truth. So let's begin talking about Jesus where he says the church is really built on him. Uh, every community, every kind of community, every group, like whether it be an AA group or a 4-H group or a knitting group or whatever group you want to talk about, every community is built on some sort of foundation. And most of the foundations we see in the world are, are one of, I think, three things. Sometimes they're a cause. And by cause, I mean they, they take up some kind of issue like the eradication of abuse of sloths, right? They're like, that is evil, and we need to put that down forever, right? And so that's a cause. Others, it'll be some sort of creed where they go, the most important thing in life is happiness, the pursuit of happiness. And they, they gather together. Happiness is what it's all about, and we only do what makes me happy or what makes you happy and when these conflict, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm about happiness. Or some weird connection. It doesn't have to be weird. It can be very simple, like, you know, we have a community centered around sports. We have a community centered around some hobby. We have a community centered around dressing up in weird things. Like whatever, okay? Communities are built on a foundation, and you say, I'm, I'm on the foundation. I'm part of the community. I'm not on the foundation. I'm not part of the community. But unlike every other community out there, whether it be religious or irreligious, the church is a completely different foundation than any others. It's not built on a cause, though you do see churches take up causes. It's not built on a creed, though you do hear sometimes unbiblical creeds that churches will take up. It's not built on a connection, right? When we planted the church... We don't go, all right, I want to reach 20 to 25-year-old. Well, we didn't do that. It's not built on just building a club where we all look the same and we all think the same because this is what's so unique about the church. We're very different. Now, take this for what it is. We probably wouldn't be friends, a lot of us, if it wasn't for the church. And that's not to say that um, we're, we would hate each other. It's to say that we don't have enough in common as people to just bind us together naturally. But the one thing we do have that binds us together in a way that you go, kind of like when I was in Europe, I went to Europe one time for a church playing thing. It was awesome, but I went with a guy named Aaron Ortiz who's not here. I wish he was because he went, praise God, every other sentence, and I can't wait for him to be here. But I remember when we were, we were lost, Americans. We, didn't know, we might as well had like flashing signs that says, we're Americans, because we didn't know what we were doing. And the guy to be with is Aaron Ortiz because he's like Bermuda shorts and like, you know, socks with sandals. It's like, whatever, I'm here. And it's like, rad. Okay, it's great to be with. 
He's just talking to people. And I'm like hiding, hoping I don't get killed. And we meet a guy, and he's an American soldier. And there was instantly an affinity, because no one else was talking our language, but like, because they were just, I don't know where we we're at, in a place where I guess no one speaks English, I don't know. But it was there, it was like, yeah, brother, and he helped us out. And it was like this instant connection. And that's like the church is like, I don't know if you've ever been with someone, you're like, that person's a believer. <laughs> I know a person's a believer. And there's something that binds us together that's deeper than affinity, deeper than clothes, deeper in the way we talk. It's a confession. It's not a cause, not a creed, not some weird connection. It's a confession about who Jesus is. That's what the church is built on. But here's the, I guess, strange thing or sad thing is that there's lots of Jesuses. There's not just one. Well, there is actually one, real one. But there's a lot of false ones. Jesus asked his disciples, like, who do you think, who does the world say that I am? And they come up with some interesting answers. They say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, all prophets in their own way. One would be a resurrected prophet because John the Baptist died. One would be a returned prophet because Elijah hadn't died and he had gone away in a chariot and I guess he came back. And one had died named Jeremiah and he, I guess, was a reincarnated prophet. Even the world knows that Jesus is special. Even the world will say Jesus was different. Usually they won't get past the fact of saying Jesus is this kind of spiritual guru or a wise teacher or a good example or even a radical movement leader. And the interesting thing about people who build on a foundation called Jesus that's not actually Jesus is you'll find that they kind of pervert Jesus into whatever they need to be a savior or be saved from. They'll determine what the greatest evil is. Democrats, they're the greatest evil. And then Jesus is suddenly Republican. Right? Or they will declare that poverty is the worst evil in the world, so Jesus is, he is just about poverty. And if you're not about poverty, you don't love Jesus. Like They will pervert and twist Jesus to whatever they need to save them from what they've defined as the greatest evil, and that evil typically won't be sin. Jesus becomes whoever they need to fight their cause or to affirm their creed or to make their connection. And as I said, there's a lot of faith communities built on a guy named Jesus that's the wrong Jesus. And wrong Jesus, that seems weird to say. Well, Paul said it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In rebuking the Corinthian church, he said, look, you are so quick to follow another Jesus another gospel, another spirit. He says there's lots. There will be people that come and knock on your door and say, hi, I'm from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am from, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. And guess what? They all have a Jesus. The Muslims have a Jesus. And the question is, what is behind the definition? The Jesus that we confess as individuals and as a church will shape our church. A church is not shaped by its pastor. It's not shaped by its programs. It's not shaped by the partnerships it makes with people in ministry. It's shaped by its foundation, right? When you see a, a building 
site and you see a foundation, you're wondering, wonder what that building's going to look like. Even if you were flying over the top of it, you would see a shape, but you would never know exactly what the building is until they started building it. And you go, oh, I guess that's a gas station, or that's a house, or that's a strange looking thing, or whatever. Our foundation will define who we are. And we're only two years old. And five years from now, we'll see if it's built on the foundation of Jesus Christ or not. Maybe seven years from now. Because we will look like Jesus or we'll look like a Jesus. And there are lots of Jesuses to choose from, right? There is just, well, Jesus is a good teacher. And a church that's built on Jesus is a good, I'm not saying Jesus is not a good teacher, but if that's the ultimate of what he is, then you will turn to Jesus as a teacher like you turn to Gandhi. He'll be the Wikipedia when you want an answer. Jesus is a teacher. Or Jesus is a good man. A good example. That's what he is. A good example. I'm going to follow the example of Jesus except when I don't want to. Or Jesus is a wise guru or a hippie or a yuppie or a Republican or a Democrat. Or Jesus is my helpful therapist. Or Jesus is my rich uncle that if I do enough for him, he will give me gifts of prosperity. It will be wonderful. Or Jesus is a moralist. Or Jesus is a free thinker. Or Jesus is a rebel. We need to rebel against as many things as we can. Or Jesus is my all-affirming friend of sinners. Right? And we'll stick interesting flags on the front of our church. And we'll tell everyone we're open-minded and affirming because Jesus loves sinners. So he embraces everybody. And he doesn't ever say something sinful or wrong. And slowly that church will be built. All of those false Jesus are just different ways of, of doing this. Of declaring Jesus to be a man sent to ensure my comfort, my success, or my happiness. There are churches built on that. There are faith communities built on that. That Jesus is he came to ensure that I would be happy and that I would be comfortable. That's not who Jesus is. It's not that Jesus isn't interested in your happiness. It's that he's more interested in your holiness. When Jesus asked Peter, or he probably asked all the disciples, who do you say that I am? I know the world says a lot about me. Who do you say that I am, Peter? Peter says, you are Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. The son of the living God. And what does he say there? Now, I want to really ask, like, really sit on this question. Like, who do you say Jesus is? We ask that kind of flippantly, like, who do you say Jesus But really, who do you say Jesus is? Because who he is will define and shape your life. Peter says, Jesus is the king. He's the king. What does it mean to be the king? It means he owns everything. It means he is Lord. He is master. He is your owner. Is Jesus your owner? Does he own your stuff? Does he own your life? Does he own your breath? Does he own your energy? Does he own your money? Or is it yours and occasionally you give him some? If Jesus is the king, he owns it all. He commands everyone rules everyone, whether they want to recognize his authority or not. 
He is the one in charge always, forever, because he is king sitting on his throne. How does it make you approach life differently? Do you really believe that anything inside of his kingdom that he is ruling surprises him? That he's not aware of? When you adopt and believe Jesus is king, you change your perspective on everything. But he doesn't just say he's a king. He doesn't say he's the king, not a king, the king, the king of kings. He says he is the son of God. He is the son of the man. And what did Jesus ask him? Who they say the son of man is, right? Very fleshly, very human. Who did you say this, this guy is, Jesus? He says, you're not just the son of man, you're the son of God. Jesus is God. Jesus was, Jesus is, Jesus will ever be. Jesus was never created. Jesus is the Lord. Therefore, what Jesus says are God's words. What Jesus does is God's actions. Jesus' blood dying and shedding on the cross is God's blood. That's a totally different Jesus than therapist Jesus, Democrat Jesus, friend Jesus. It's Lord Jesus. Jesus is not just another teacher. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another man. He's not just the best of religious leaders. Jesus is not merely a good example, a political freedom fighter, or a tragic hero. He is the Son of the Father. He is the Creator come to earth to gather peoples for His own possession by dying for them. Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the author of salvation, the builder of a new creation, Jesus is the eternal Savior, the sinless substitute for sins, God in human flesh, come first to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, proclaim good news to the poor, conquer sin, conquer Satan, conquer death, and he's returning again to eradicate it forever and live with us forever. That's who Jesus is. But we talk about Jesus as if he is just a therapist, or he's just a good teacher, he's just a good man. And so we understand that as a church, the foundation of our church is the profession of Jesus' identity. We cannot understand what life is or how to live it without professing. And a foundation, I said, that defines your shape. But a foundation like, like any building, right, it gives it strength. If a house does not have a foundation, it will, Jesus said, wash away. A foundation directs our growth. Our foundation even restricts us from growing in certain ways because it's not on Jesus. But what if it works, right? Isn't that why churches make decisions sometimes? Well, if this works, it must be good. But if it's not built on Jesus, it doesn't matter if it works. It's bad. The foundation never changes. You never say, hmm, you know what? We're going to change things up a little bit, church. We're going to change our whole foundation. It never changes. What that means is that I'm willing, not desiring, willing to lose our awesome music, willing to lose some of our awesome people, willing to lose our building, willing to lose our coffee. I know that's tough to think about in the Northwest. Willing to lose everything 
knowing that if we lose everything, if our foundation, if we are resting on Jesus Christ's identity, then we are still the church without all that stuff. There are many things that people come like, well, what kind of, do you have this ministry, this ministry, this ministry, we need this ministry. Like, you know what? We don't actually need any of those. It's nice to have them. What we need is a foundation. And that foundation is our profession of the identity of Jesus Christ because the profession is something that can never be taken away. Everything else can be. Jesus continues. And what I think he warns us about is that if we ever step off of that foundation, Jesus will stop building our church. Now, as we'll see, he won't stop building the church. He'll stop building our church. If we ever step off of Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God, as a foundation for our church, our church will die. But here's the scary thing. We can begin to build on a different foundation, like mm, our own teachings, our own special revelations, which some churches do. We can start building on just our traditions and the way we do things. And the church may continue to grow. Catch that? We could change the foundation and the church could swell and get huge. But the church is actually dying. We can't measure the success of a church, our church, or any other by just what we see. We need to go below and go, what is the foundation of this thing? The church is built on the profession of Jesus Christ as Lord and King. And if we continue to profess that, He will build the church. <coughs> and that's because our community is not built on innovation. I get so many books and read so many blogs and have so many pastors give me insight and input and suggestions into like, here's how you need to innovate. Here's the strategies you need to do to grow your church. Here are the things, blah, 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 blah. Jesus says very clearly that the church has never, ever, 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 ever been built on innovation. It's been built on revelation. That's what he tells Peter, right? His flesh and blood didn't reveal any of that to him. But the scary thing is that churches are built largely with flesh and blood. It's very tempting to think of new marketing strategies and new innovations to bring more people in. And I'm telling you right now, we ain't going to do it. We're going to commit ourselves to professing the only thing that actually can change hearts, and that is the revelation that has been given to us, not some innovation we make up. I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, reminding us who we are as Jesus builds his church. Because that's what he says, right? He says, look, it's built on me and it's built by me. So get the snarf out of my way. Here's what he says, Paul, when people start arguing over flesh and blood things. They had argued in their church about who was the most popular pastor. Well, I like this pastor. I like this pastor. Well, I podcast this pastor. Well, I podcast this pastor. My church is awesome. Right? Here's what they're doing. They the Romans hadn't invented podcasting yet, but you get my point. 
Verse 5 says, what then is Apollos? Right? He's going, who's Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants from through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Or we could say, neither he who teaches, neither he who serves, neither he who runs the sound. They're nothing. God's the one who grows. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. God's field. God's building. Jesus is building this church, and, and I want you to understand what we believe that means. Okay, What starts with a profession, I believe, continues into church planting. You go, Seriously, this is where you're getting it? Yes. Why do I think that? I believe Jesus built his church through the profession, which leads to church planting. Why does it lead to church planting? Jesus is about fulfilling the great commission that he gave us, which was what? Go into the world, right? Make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teach them everything that I taught you, that I commanded So Jesus is about making disciples and planting churches. How do you get that? Let me give you a quick snapshot of it. Acts is volume two of a two-volume set. Volume one was the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote Luke, then he wrote Acts. The very first book, or very first verse in the book of Acts says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, and Luke's talking about the other book. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now what does that imply? That Jesus is continuing to do what he did. And <laughs> excuse me, what we get in Acts is a picture of how the disciples understood what Jesus meant by the Great Commission. And what do we see them doing? Planting churches. Every great evangelistic challenge in the New Testament is not just a call to make disciples. It says it is to baptize. And in Acts and elsewhere, baptism always meant incorporation into a worshiping community. In other words, as you are professing your faith, churches are planted quite naturally. Disciples are being made and disciples are gathering. As you go through the book of Acts, here's the cycle you'll see. It's very simple. It's not innovative. And that's why I say as a church, why are we so committed to church planning? Because we're committed to doing what Jesus has always been doing. What you see in the church is this, or in the book of Acts. You see people preaching the gospel. Seriously, they go out, they preach the gospel. It's very simple. What do they say? Jesus Christ died for your sins. He rose from the dead to give you new life. Repent and believe. That's pretty much it. And 3,000 people, boom, believe. And as they believe, what happens? Converts are made. Believers are baptized. Congregations are gathered. Disciples are established. Leaders are raised up. And then missionaries are sent out. And then they repeat it again. The missionaries go out. They profess their faith in Jesus Christ. Converts are made. 
Believers are baptized. Congregations are gathered. Disciples are established. Leaders are raised up. And they send them out. Guess what we're doing? The same thing. We are a church plant from Marysville, Damascus Road Church, who sent another church plant to Mount Vernon, and then sent us here. And one day we'll send someone else. Because bodies naturally reproduce. And guess what? Here's the other reason why we church plant. Every church in the New Testament, whether it be Galatia, or Philippi, or Corinth, or Thessalonica, they're all gone. They're all dead. They ran their course. And as a church, we've been given a generation of time to continue in the same mission that's always been done, and one day we'll be gone. Restoration Road Church will be gone. And I, I pray that it's here for a long time. I pray that it doesn't die a horrible death that we would never want, you know, proclaimed. But there will be one day when it goes like me, I'm a father of a family. I don't want to live forever. Oh, no. But my sons and my daughters will go and they will carry on the same faith and the same family and then they will carry on and I will be gone and then one day they will be gone. This is how God has been doing it through Jesus Christ building his church. And here is maybe the scary part or the comforting part. It's not like magic. It's not like church just appears one day. He tells Peter what? On this rock, he's talking about the confession, but he's also talking to Peter. It's a play on words, right? He goes, he goes Peter, you are Peter the rock, and on this rock, okay, rock, you're on a rock, we're going to build on a rock, okay? This passage has been used by the Catholics to, to basically assert papal succession, right? Started with Peter and everyone from Peter. I won't get into that. I don't think that's what the passage teaches. But what it does teach is this, that God does build his church through men. That he uses men like Peter who had head about as thick as a rock. Peter was the impulsive one. Peter was the one who's always, oh, I mean, this Peter's the guy who right here, got, Jesus says, man, you are blessed. And about six verses from now, he's going to say, yeah, you're Satan. He goes from, blessed are you, to get behind me, Satan. This is Peter. Jesus uses men and women who are ill-equipped, who are unprepared to continue to build his church, to join him on mission and go. This is not a, a church program or mission that's built on the skilled and the gifted. It's those who are willing and faithful. I remember the first sermon that Jim Fickert, we sent him out of Damascus Road Church in 2011. I remember the first sermon he ever preached. He did not want to be a preacher. He did not want to be a church planter. And the first sermon I walked in, and he was scared. He was white. He's like six foot one million, right? And he's just like this big, white, scared Dutch guy. I'm like, dude, what's wrong? How are you feeling? He's like, oh, okay. I said, so what's the worst that could happen, man? And he goes, well, I could pass out and pee on myself in front of the church. <laughs> and I said, that's pretty bad. Let's not do that. And then he stood up and he preached an awesome sermon. Then he preached another one. Then he preached another one. And then... He led a church plant. He felt ill-equipped. He didn't know what he was doing. You ever notice the, the top draft picks of Jesus? Like, 
Jesus is the one who goes into the line where like you got the you got the short kid, you got the kid with no legs, you got the really, you know, gigantic corner pound kid, or it's like, I don't know if we want to play football, right? Jesus is like, yeah, I'll take him, I'll take him, I'll take him. Like he chose the most broken of people. Like, there are no other kind, mind you. But he didn't pick people that were ready or people that were educated or people that, you know, had some kind of grand experience. He picked fishermen and prostitutes. He picked fugitives. He picked boat builders and teenage moms. He picked IRS agents. He picked men like Paul who murdered Christians. Fishermen. In this church right now, guess what? Jesus is still building his church, and he's going to use some of you to continue to build it. Some of you here are called to be elders, and some are called to be missionaries, and some are called to be even church planters. And I don't need to be the one to convince you. Jesus will do that. But I am to say that, that Jesus does choose men to work through and Peter, who had never preached a sermon ever, stood up for the first time and preached a sermon as thousands were saved. And it also brings me comfort to say that Jesus, yeah, he reproduces, he plants churches, and he uses men, but he guess what? He uses us despite our sin. Let's not forget that Peter denied Jesus. The success of Jesus' mission to build a church is not dependent upon a man or a program or a system. The fruitfulness of the mission is dependent not even on our faithfulness. It's dependent upon Jesus' faithfulness to us. He says, this is not your church or our church. He says, it's my church. It's Jesus' church, and he builds it how he wants, when he wants, where he wants, and through whom he wants. And sometimes that means birthing new churches, and sometimes that means revitalizing old churches, and sometimes that means killing sick churches, and sometimes that means resurrecting dead ones. And I I know many of you are aware of, of what has happened with Mars Hill as of late, or church formerly known as Mars Hill. And I asked myself as I was going through this, like, okay, so did, did the gates of hell prevail here? Was Jesus wrong? And the truth of the matter is, Jesus was not wrong. And the gates of hell did not prevail. And if you think for a second that Jesus is not in control of his building of his church, you're foolish. Because what Jesus said in here is that as he builds his church and grows his church through the men he wants, as broken and flawed as they are, no matter what happens, Jesus' continuing mission to build his church will never, ever, ever fail. Pastors will fall. Members will leave. Churches will die. But Jesus Christ's church will be built one way or another. Because the men and their innovation or their faithfulness or their morality or whatever are not the foundation of the church. And they're not the ones building the church. Jesus is. So our job is to hold tightly onto Jesus 
and let him build and not try to run ahead of him, not try to innovate around him or think that we can even help him. We're to follow him and we're to worship him and we're to profess him and watch as he builds the church through screwed up, broken, ugly people like us. That's comforting, I know. But the last thing that Jesus says here, it's not only built on him and by him, but it's built for him. The church doesn't exist for you and me. If you came here to be entertained, or came here to be educated, or came here to be pleased, I hope I'm pleased today, you don't understand what the church is. The church is for Jesus. And he does give Peter an interesting statement here. He tells Peter that he's given him the keys of the kingdom. He tells him he can bind things and loose things or forbid things or permit things. These keys represent what is a badge of authority given to the chief steward of the church. Church leaders and church members are expected to uphold the rule of God, to represent God. And that begins with knowing, first of all, that you're under authority, right? Jesus gives you his keys. He's like, here. That implies that they're keys to his house, not ours. We don't have the authority just to make up whatever we want or proclaim whatever we want. We have the responsibility to forbid and to permit what He has forbidden and permitted. The third part of the Great Commission is not just make disciples, not just baptize, but it's to teach everything that Jesus commanded, and that's what we're to do. We are a people who are under authority, who have authority. The Word of God has been given to the church. We have responsibility to decree what the Word of God is. We can't make stuff up. And so therefore, as the church, you need to understand that as we're making decisions and we're doing things, you need to test everything that we're doing by the Word of God because we are pastors and we are people under authority. And if we step off this foundation, you rebuke our leaders and there's the door. And I guarantee you can find a church somewhere that is proclaiming and professing the truth. But by God's grace, we'll remain on this foundation because we know that we have keys to Jesus' house. We don't have our own keys to do what we want. Our keys are horrible. They open nothing. They lock nothing. The Bible calls the church in 1 Timothy 3 the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth, right? Right? So the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. It does not make the truth, it supports it. It doesn't invent the truth, it supports it. That guides all of our decisions and all of our proclamations that we go out into the world because it's really comfortable to go, you know, let's not talk about that truth. That truth is probably a little out of bounds. It's going to upset some people. We're under authority. We don't have the opportunity or the privilege of deciding what is truth and what is not. And not only that, we are to live under that authority. If you profess that Jesus is your foundation, then you should do more than just speak it, you should be living it out. 
The Bible says that the church, in Ephesians chapter 3, it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might be now known to the rulers and authorities. We're supposed to be a picture of what it looks like as a people to live under the rule of God. And that starts with your family and in your neighborhood and in the church and in the world. We are to live as a people who actually live under authority. When people see our church, they should look, and it'd be great if they said, man, those are really loving people. Those are friendly people. Man, they got great coffee. They do good things. They send people to Chile. All of that's meaningless if they don't say, Jesus. That church loves Jesus more than that. Because there's lots of groups you could say, they really love Jesus. That church, excuse me, follows Jesus. That church obeys Jesus. That church worships Jesus. How do you know that? Have you seen how they treat their wife and their husband? Have you seen how they shepherd their children? Have you seen how they spend their money? Have you seen how they serve those that are in their own family, how they care for them in ways that like can't be explained by anything? Like the rule of God. And, and the more that profession that Jesus is king goes deeper into your heart, the more the lordship of his life becomes to govern everything. Like what? Parenting, relationships, money, how you work, everything. Your life becomes lived under the lordship. We have the responsibility to do that. The world has all kinds of excuses. As the church, if you are a Christian, you have none. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. Very clear. We profess our faith in Jesus and we plant churches to do that. And guess what? We preach. We preach not only just in our disposition towards the world, but in how we live and then with our mouths. We have responsibility to preach. And I say we, the church, not me, the pastor. I'm going to read a quote from Martin Luther that, that cuts you to the quick. But Luther's the one that said, you should either, as we preach, hate your sin or hate me. So we'll go with that. Luther says this, whoever hears the gospel from the apostles or the church and doesn't want to believe it should be told the judgment that he will be damned. Are you telling me we draw lies in the sand? Yes, we do. Because the keys are that which has been given to the church to determine who and how you become a Christian. Here's what he says. They don't want to believe. It should be told them the judgment that he'll be damned. And when he becomes a believer and falls away and doesn't want to be converted to faith again, he should be told the judgment that his sin is kept and he'll be damned. That's harsh. Yes, that's what preaching is. It's preaching the truth. It's declaring that, guess what? There is a king. And he will take into account. But there's also a king who will bless. And what does Luther say? On the other hand, whoever hears the gospel and believes or turns from his sins to faith should be told the judgment that his sins are given and he will be blessed. So insofar as we do this accurately, 
the church possesses the authority and the responsibility to declare what is a Christian and what is not. Not who is a Christian and who is not. There's a difference. What is a Christian and what is not. The church has that responsibility. You have that responsibility to draw some lines in the sand. To declare that salvation is given under heaven through one name, Jesus Christ. And that if you do not repent, you will die in your sins. We have the responsibility. No one else has that responsibility. The church does. There is only one gospel. And there is only one foundation laid by Jesus Christ. And we are given authority to proclaim that one message and declare the terms of entering the kingdom of God and living for His glory on earth. We have the authority to speak, but not to change the terms. And not only do we have the authority, we have the responsibility. We don't preach in our homes, and we don't preach in our neighborhoods, and we don't preach in the church because we necessarily want to or it makes everyone feel really comfortable and love us. We preach because we have to. Preaching is a priority because God's Word is a priority. We preach God's Word because there's power in it. We preach God's Word in Jesus Christ as Lord alone because God's Word and Jesus is central to every aspect of our lives. We preach God's Word because if we don't, we are not doing what Jesus did, what His disciples did, and what He told us to do as the church. We preach because God's Word has always been God's Word has always been His chosen instrument to create and convict and convert and conform His people. It is the power to salvation. So what are we about as a church? First and foremost, it's believing in Jesus Christ. Professing our identity as sons, (laughs) citizens of the King. And then we go out and we continue to plant churches that believe the same thing. And through those churches, we preach. And as we preach, people believe. And as we preach, people are baptized. And we are gathered. And disciples are established. And then we raise up leaders, some of you. And we send out missionaries, some of you, to do it again. And we do it again. And we do it again. And we do it again until Jesus returns or we return to Him. That's our mission. It's not new. It's not innovative. It's simple. And this is why I'll close with this verse. Romans 10 says this, For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you are not a Christian, if your allegiance is to anything or anyone other than Jesus, I'm telling you, you are going to follow that false god all the way to hell. And it's my responsibility and our responsibility to tell you that, to say that will never satisfy and that will always lead to death. But the Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, if you simply declare, look, I am a sinner and I know it. I've tried to rule my life and I've made a shipwreck of it. I receive freely the grace and the forgiveness that you offer so that I can come under your care and your protection and I can be saved not based on any work because mine's really bad, but on the work that you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
There are two kinds of people here. Those who need to be saved and converted to Jesus and those who be saved and converted to mission. And my fear is that most of you need to be converted to mission because you think you're Christian. And so if you're a Christian, if you profess you have that foundation, then you need to get on board and start helping build his church. And how do you do that? Start preaching. Start sharing. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We profess, we plant, we preach, and repeat. We profess, we plant, we preach. And as we preach, more people profess, more people plant, more people preach. That's our whole mission. We will take communion here to remind ourselves of our profession, of our foundation. This is something we do every week so that we remind ourselves that our identity is both in Christ and in the church. Because as you take the cup and have his blood shed for you, and you take the bread and have his body broken for you, you are declaring your death and his life through you. But you're not just doing it by yourself. You do it together. So this confession is both a confession, a profession of faith, and a confession of your unity with each other. Remember that. You're a church. All messed up and loved by Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace to us. We have rocks in our heads and heads that are like rocks. And Lord, we are tempted to step off the foundation that you built many years ago on your son. It is through him that we find our identity. And he is the one who declared that we are to find our purpose in many ways through building church with him. I pray, Father, that you will help us not to see the church as an institution or a building or some kind of club. And for those who have been hurt by the church, Father, we'll recognize that it is a people. And it's a people that are being continually sanctified and shaped. But it's a people that you are gathering, that you build the church through who you want, how you want, when you want. And we are just joining your mission that's going to be going for thousands and thousands of years. So with the time we've been given, Father, as Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, we're only two years old, Lord, and you know exactly the day we're going to die. And whatever time you've given us, personally or corporately, I ask, Holy Spirit, you will help us to remain true to the foundation that was established by Jesus Christ himself. And you help us to risk everything to build your church, to send more missionaries. And you'll give us boldness and courage and joy to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of all. It is in Him that we find hope. It is in Him that we put our faith. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we dare to speak before you. For we are here to worship Him. Amen.